going into my basketball. Every time I rock, man, this is how we rap around. Peace to my man. Now we got the camera out. Every time I spit it, cross over. Hello everyone, this is Josh, also known as Yashu, and you're tuning into episode 24 of the TLY Talks uh, podcast. Uh, today we have a returning guest uh, back on the platform, uh, Robert Douglas. Uh, how are you doing today? Hey everybody, great to see you again. Nice to be here. I'm I'm doing well, thank you. That's uh, great to hear, Robert. Uh, so for those of you who don't know, uh, Robert is a music composer, podcast host, and an all-around uh, guy who's worked for the likes of uh, Christina Jones and uh, Kimiko as well, too, in which we've talked about in the previous uh, podcast uh, before as well. So uh, for this one, we're diving into more of the tech aspect of um like music and culture and also with some aspects of music as well too so it's definitely an enjoyable uh, podcast to hear um so i want to start it off uh, with the question that we did miss uh, for a bit um so you're actually like in the tech industry industry is that correct yeah and i have been for the past about 22 years so i'll, I'll give you a brief history of how that happened and how music and tech then played uh interacting roles in in my career so you can uh, frame that a little bit so i'm a classically trained musician i have three college degrees in uh, classical music performance uh, i played piano and french horn uh, i actually moved to germany to play in classical orchestras in the late 90s and uh, had a, a a short but a sweet career as a horn player where I successfully toured around Europe playing uh, all sorts of concerts in all sorts of venues. I went on tour with the Jeru Jerusalem Symphony Orchestra uh, around the world. I recorded some CDs uh, and I actually got a job in a small German orchestra that I uh, did for about a year. And at the end of that, I was like, hey, I made it like I'm, I'm or I'm making it right. I'm at the beginning of what looks like a successful French horn uh, classical music career. But I didn't like it. <laughs> which is kind of a big problem. I really, uh, the 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 working environment and the the actual act of that being my job was robbing me of all the enjoyment of music that I thought I was going to have. And I wasn't making any money. It was really poorly paid. So I decided to um, to put music more in the place of my hobby and to focus on uh, internet technologies as a career. So I taught myself how to program. Uh, I was literally studying programming on the train on the way to rehearsal or in between uh, the pauses and breaks of operas. So I would finish act one of an opera and I would get out the laptop and I would write code. And that's literally how I uh, upskilled myself to be able to get a job in 2000 uh, as a Java programmer. And from there, uh, I basically did everything internet and everything that had to do with open source software and have built uh, a successful and enjoyable career as an internet uh, technologist. Uh, and that has enabled me to be the producer for Kimiko Ishizaka and Christina Jones and to participate in other musical projects. So um, in a way, uh, it expanded my musical horizons to get out of music as a profession uh, because I took on different roles that I never would have otherwise. Um, and overall, it was a really good decision for me 
personally, I had uh, recognized that there was some upper limit to the talent that I had as a classical musician and probably some upper limit to the quality of job that I would get in a German orchestra. And uh, it didn't, it didn't fit with my image of my overall self potential. So I needed to break out of that limitation, which meant unfortunately, in some respects, setting down my instrument and moving on to other things. So that's that's the short history of it. Uh, there's 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 a lot that we can unpack in terms of the um, the skill set overlap between being a classically trained musician and being a prominent spokesperson for software projects, which is what I became. Yeah, no, most definitely. And, you know, when we do think about tech in that sense, too, we never really analyze like more so the emotional aspect of creation. And I think like with certain programs, too, that do have that aspect, you know, with, you know, like self-played uh, pianos in that sense, you know, where they do press like the keyboards, like every time like they show like a color, as well as with like programs like FL Studio, Fruity Loops. It's uh, very interesting on how the creation of music can be brought back into tech in that sense too, based on the programming, whether like self-taught or whether it's, you know, automated in that sense too. So how do you even feel about it? Like within certain aspects, like such as like an automated keyboard or like a program like FL Studio or like Fruity Loops? Well, I don't know those specific technologies that you've just mentioned, but I can mention a couple of the more technical endeavors that I took upon myself uh, with this intersection of working with a classical pianist, Kimiko Ishizaka, and also having access to a wide range of technologists who were in my professional uh, daily life, people I would meet at conferences, people I was doing business with through my companies. So at one point, <laughs> we had a recording of Bach's Goldberg variations, and we wanted to promote that. So I, uh, through the Drupal project, knew somebody who was involved with um, the, uh, the public radio uh, stations in Wisconsin. So Wisconsin Public Radio, so 20-some stations throughout the state, uh, all broadcasting from Madison, and uh, Matthew Tift was his name. And he he knew my work both from the software side and also from the uh, classical music piano side. So I had this recording of the Goldberg Variations that we wanted to promote, and we also had a digital score, uh, so the notes, of that piece that we had made in conjunction with a software company called Muse Score, which some of your listeners will know for making music notation. It's a free open source software program that you can still download today. And we had made this score with Muse Score, and it had a score following function that we had pioneered. Uh, we had actually, uh, in Munich, we had, were on stage at a music conference where Kimiko played the Goldberg Variations and a laptop with a microphone was listening to her and showing the place in the score where she was at on the big screen. So it was live score following. And we thought that was very interesting and we wanted to expand that concept to the radio listeners of the state of Wisconsin. So what we did is we broadcast the recording of the open Goldberg variations. And then anybody who wanted to follow the score in real time could simply go to a website where the score was embedded into the page and it was listening to the radio broadcast and following the score. <laughs> So this is kind of a crazy idea because radio is just a form of light. It's just being sent out there. And when it gets to your home, there's no way to digitally correlate that back 
to, especially, you know, 15, 18 years ago when we did this, there was no way to correlate that back to something happening on your computer. The radio station wasn't coming through your computer. It was coming through the airwaves uh, to your radio. Uh, this is before digital radio. So we we actually built software that would listen to the radio broadcast and show the listener in their web browser where in the score the note was, like in real time, like it was following along. And we did that with 23 stations or so through Wisconsin. Each one had a different delay so like there was a two to seven second delay in the broadcast for each one that we had to account for all of that um so that was pretty technologically crazy uh that was fun i'll give you one more example of the the fun type of stuff that we did with technology just playing with music with technology so um another example is a, a talk that i gave at a conference in denver with a couple of colleagues of mine uh it was in a very large hall seated several thousand people it was the beginning of a DrupalCon conference that might say something to some of your some of your listeners it's uh the main conference uh, related to the drupal software and what we did was we uh, decided to take over everybody's phone and laptop in the entire room, uh, willingly, they had to give us permission, to turn it into an interactive uh, mix. So like to live mix all of their phones. So I told them to turn the volume up and they connected to our website, the software. And from there on screen, I had a mixing board and I was sending beats out and different trance rhythms and sounds uh, into a mesh into this room. And randomly, people's phones were connecting to different channels in my mixing board. And there was this ambient mix of sound that we had prepared uh, in advance that was all coming from people's laptops and phones and tablets all around. It sounded crazy plus all the lights were on so like you know it was a dark room and everybody's phone was on you could see their face and it was changing colors as I was changing the mix and over that ambient mix and beat that I was generating through all these devices we had a group of guys who sang in this style of Gregorian chant um, let's see what was it it was actually uh, somebody had rewritten the book of Genesis but with words that explained the genesis of the Drupal software so it was totally geeky and, to, and somebody composed a Gregorian chant over this like room full of devices that were all part of my mixing board uh, so I mean being a musician and having access to technology let us do some really fun things um, and I can also say that after being a musician and being on stage, I was never, ever afraid of speaking in public. I mean, that was just so not scary for me compared to like actually playing French horn in an orchestra that, uh, I would say the, the, the best preparation that music gave me to succeed in software was simply the lack of fear of talking in public. <laughs> no, nah, most definitely. And, you know, when you discussed like the whole like radio situation where you created the software for the program, like it made me think of a time where in most cases people would need like a VPN to like access like certain browsers because like depending on the country where they're from, like if they want to access like a certain program, they'd have to use like a VPN in that sense too. I know with uh, radio right now, it's actually like very interesting on those browsers too, because for some people they could still like, actually like access the real time 
and the real listening time and with everything else too on uh, depending on the songs played and everything else too and it's actually like showcased everywhere too uh depending on like what there's like on any other situation too but i think nowadays too it's even more modern with like platforms like serious xm in which you know it's accessible for everyone to use like in their car and you know people could like listen to the same song depending on like what city they're from so it's kind of like an interesting aspect and in a tech where you know anyone can access it like at any other time depending on which area you could be in virginia or you could be in like seattle like listening to the same song in that sense too so i definitely agree with what you're talking about as well too well that's digital radio that you're talking about which is just basically a different form of internet streaming um i was talking about radio radio like radio waves that were analog that uh, are simply light that hit an aluminum antenna on a receiver and then played music through your speaker um and you had to be near enough to a radio station that was broadcasting to pick up that signal um yeah. so it was really limited to the uh people in wisconsin and no amount of vpn would have helped you get access to that in oh, those true. days yeah. of course these these days everything's different everything's just moved to the internet basically yeah no, almost definitely and you know like even within that aspect have you noticed like any major differences between the tech industry and the music industry in that sense too uh the music industry is awful <laughs> <laughs> yeah so uh let's put a finer point on that uh the music industry is uh flooded with people who want to participate but there's not enough uh pie to go around so everybody's trying to get their piece of the pie and if you have a piece of the pie you try to protect your piece of the pie and it's um super competitive and the musicians will basically fund themselves and make huge sacrifices in their lives to try to bring themselves forward but the vast majority of them have no chance of having anything near the success that they're dreaming of whereas in the software industry because it for the for the last 30 or more years has been in hyper growth mode um if you have a modicum of relevant skills you can get good employment you can get onto good projects you can do meaningful work you're valued if you lose your job you can move into a new job now of course there were huge numbers of layoffs uh, a month ago in you know some countries like the United States but this is all cyclic it will correct itself those people will get jobs if you have jobs, uh, skills in technology, say computer programming or project management or HR skills or marketing skills, or you can write uh, about technology competently as a technical writer, then basically it's a seller's market. So you can uh, negotiate your salary, uh, you can get good benefits, you can get stock options in stock option plans for your companies if you're working for a startup. And a, a very large number of people who go into the industry actually obtain true wealth. So um, in, in, and music is, is just brutal. You have to be so tough and so talented and so lucky to have any amount of success that it's, um, it's, it's, it's really hard for most people to sustain. Yeah, no, most definitely. And I do definitely agree on your point on why the music industry is awful too, like especially on how they're branching into certain tech and content creating companies to use to help benefit like artists in like certain ways too. So like, you know about like uh, TikTok, correct? 
of course yes yeah so like usually with uh, tiktok like most most like nowadays too with labels they're forcing their artists that are signed there to kind of create like more content rather than like making like certain music too and to even get like certain songs uh, viral in that sense too so like they even had like a kate bush song that went viral on, on a tv show that kind of got viral like on tiktok again like similar to like other like mainstream artists as well too and you know even w- within this question do you think that finding a way to make your music go viral on tiktok is like a fair or creative or effective like strategy like within marketing t- for artists to use or does it like diminish like the artistry in that sense well i mean for certain um for certain types of music uh, then it's nice to have a new channel of promotion. Um, it wouldn't work for other types of music. I mean, uh, just to take an extreme example, um, you know, a Mahler symphony is an hour long. Sometimes a Wagner opera is four and a half hours, five hours long. How do I promote that on TikTok? That's hard. I can find a 30 second clip, but that's just like you know it's it's not really representative of the work in any way that's might get some people's attention but you still have to have an actionable step where the people go off and actually listen to the four or five hour opera if if that's what you're doing if you've got a three minute song or a 40 or 50 minute album and your goal as a musician is for people to listen to the whole song or to the whole album, then TikTok can be a good way to build awareness. Um, But the actionable step of them actually then going and listening to music, there's a very strong cutoff rate. I mean, I know how I use TikTok. Uh, I just keep scrolling. Even if I liked the song, I'm not paying attention to who did it. It's there the artist is in the background the music's in the background and maybe the music fits a nice meme or uh you know challenge that people are doing and you know maybe people copy it or sing along and maybe the music actually does become prominent and i've also seen some performers who actually perform on tiktok as singers or playing their instruments where they become famous and then go to uh, an album whatever it's it's great to have these new possibilities but if it becomes a one-size-fits-all criterion for what it is to be a modern musician then that's not an enriching activity that's a depleting activity that means that the um, definition of music has become less not more but I don't think that's happening either I mean for some uh, artists TikTok is a blessing and for other artists it's irrelevant you just have to know where you fit yeah for sure and from what i've noticed too like some people will take like more like renowned pieces so like so they'll take like a mainstream piece from like a mozart or uh, beethoven and i've actually like heard this uh, before on a song too so they would take that unique sample and like you know use like layered uh, production whether it's like trap beats whether it's a hip-hop beat and you know increase like the bpm in that sense too and then like use that beat for tiktok in that sense too for people who aren't into classical music you know they'll actually like enjoy the style but for purists who are into that type of sound you know like usually like a mainstream or a creative piece you know you don't want to like destroy the piece and the and its purity and all that so 
I don't know, like how it would work if someone would uh, take a piece that you would work on and, you know, use like layered beats or like trap beats to kind of make it like more mainstream, like what you preferred, or would you say like it kind of like ruins like the authenticity and artistry in that sense? So, I mean, my answer on that has to be multi-layered. Personally, I don't care. You can do whatever you want with any music that you want. And if you create something that doesn't sound good, I just won't listen to it. And that's up to me to decide whether it sounds good or not, because musical taste is highly individual and highly personal and non-transferable. As much as we talk about what music we like, as much as we hope to find people that share our tastes, even if you like the same group or the same artist or the same band, you're probably listening to it differently and extracting different things from it. And your actual perception of music is probably not one-to-one with the person you're talking to, even if you like the same artist. So you have to accept at some point that your own perception of music and the music that you like is only relevant to you. Yeah, almost definitely. Though I have to bring in, for example, the example of Kimiko Ishizaka, who is a classical music purist. She absolutely thinks that anything like layering beats on Beethoven is utter blasphemy and doesn't add anything. She hates every aspect of that. She would never support any of that ever. So there are people with very purist points of view on that. Um, But I mean, People aren't making music for Kimiko Ishizaka anyway. She barely listens to music other people create to begin with. So like she's not a target audience that you design for. Yeah, I mean, if you're making music and if like you're asking these questions to like gain insight from the point of view of a music maker, of a producer, the only thing that matters is your taste. So you have to decide, are you going to make music that sounds good to you or not? And if you're lucky... The music that sounds good to you sounds good to a hell of a lot of other people too, and you'll make money. And if you're like everybody else, then you'll make music that sounds good to you and you'll define and hone your skills and you'll find an audience and it will be, you know, big or small or medium, whatever. It depends very much on uh, whether you're lucky or not and whether you're good. Uh if you're really good, then you can actually sway people to come to your point of view and your tastes. Uh, you can be a taste setter, a taste maker, uh, but you have to be really good. You have to be original. You have to have ideas that nobody's had before. And well, that's just hard. Yeah, no, most definitely. And I want to get your opinion uh, on this too, because we already uh, talked uh, talked about this, but um, how do you feel about like so- certain like social media apps uh, nowadays, like TikTok, like Facebook, like twitter in that sense too or instagram like i know for tiktok you mentioned that you only just scroll like a lot of like posts uh, nowadays uh but how do you feel like about like those certain apps in like general in that sense (laughs) you asked a really good question because i have strong opinions on this and i'm glad to share them so first of all I don't believe that um, Facebook or Meta is an ethical company, and I don't believe they should be supported at all. And I'm not to be found on Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp at all, or as little as possible. I only maintain WhatsApp because there are some people who insist on being contacted on WhatsApp, but I admonish them and urge them to change to a sensible program like Signal for their messaging. Signal saved Edward Snowden's life. It's secure. It's encrypted. It's not being spied on by the NSA. So uh, I don't support Meta and Facebook and Instagram in any way whatsoever, and uh, I don't maintain accounts on there at all. So I, uh, if you want to use them, then you just have to know that you're feeding a, an evil monopolistic data harvesting spy agency. 
with with very low regard for your privacy or your welfare. Uh, TikTok's the same, only for Chinese government, not American government. So I also don't actually uh, support TikTok or actually use it. Um, I did music promotion on TikTok for Christina Jones. Um, I made a very critical mistake that I would uh, advise other music promoters to be very aware of. I thought, without reading the fine print, that the amount that you might get paid out for was based on the number of views. So I did promotion to get high quality influencers to use the music that would get a lot of views. When in, ter in, in fact, uh, at least through, um, well, who was I using? Um, it's not CD Baby. Uh, it was, um, doesn't matter, another one of the music distribution. When I remember, I'll, I'll tell you. Um, yeah, they count the number of videos that use it. So it doesn't matter if it's like the least known nobody from some desolate part of earth that nobody's ever heard of. If they use your music and three people watch it, it counts the same as if a million people watch it. Just one vi one use is one use, whether it's a high profile video or a nobody. So I was... I, I did the music promotion and then was like severely disappointed with the amount of revenue that we got paid out for the licensing because like I had gone for like, hey, 10 high profile videos are way better than a hundred nobody videos. Whereas I was totally wrong, totally, totally wrong. Um, in terms of Twitter, uh, I use Twitter still because um, I still find it to be a useful messaging platform but um, its current ownership has me uh, scratching my head as to whether or not it's the way forward. I deeply long for a decentralized social media where the people themselves are the custodians of their own uh, data, but that's um, still in nascent form, still emerging. Um, people seem to be going to Mastodon, but I don't think that will ever usurp uh, TikTok or Twitter. And uh, for sure, in that sense, too, I know with like the current climate of social media nowadays, like, you know, the uh, mass audience and, you know, like usually like the backgrounds of certain people tend to be like very different. Whereas like in, in uh, Twitter, you do have like more like professionals and like analysts and experts that usually speak on like a lot of situations, too, whether it's regarding politics with you know, medicine with everything else too. And it's interesting to hear from their point of view, whereas a platform like Facebook or Instagram, it's like usually like a lot of bots that are usually like accessing the accounts with messages coming on like every other time, people from certain backgrounds with limited knowledge of certain topics, giving their opinions on certain pieces. And it is like very interesting too, on whether to get certain information from certain ones too. Like I know with Instagram, they used to they used to actually try their best to actually educate people on certain posts that might relate to the COVID-19 pandemic, whereas like within other um, platforms like Twitter, it's not really uh, like that as well, too, because of the amount of experts coming on there. But I do definitely agree on the situation with Elon Musk's uh, Elon Musk's like new Twitter right now, where like with Twitter blue, like, you know, people paying for like a verified like blue check, you know, people can give like their expert opinion on something, even though they're not like a, a genuine like a expert, like in that sense too, or like a fake celebrity that would usually post as well too. So it is kind of interesting on like the idea of fact of uh, fact checking, like on social media as well too, like 
whether it's from an actual expert or someone pretending to be in that sense. Yeah, I think the final thing that I would want to say about social media in general is that you have to work very hard in life to to separate social media as a means to an end? Is it a tool to achieve a thing that you're trying to achieve? And do you know what that thing is? Can you define that thing? Like, is it promoting your music? Is it getting concerts? Is it selling albums? Is it brand awareness for you as an artist? Or is the social media the goal in and of itself? And I think that the um, the answer for the social media platforms is that they are the goal. TikTok's not there to promote your music. Instagram's not there to promote you. Instagram's there to be used by lots of people to support Meta's data collection and advertising business. That's the only reason it's there. It's not there for you and your brand and your lifestyle and your promotion. If you can manage to use it like that, then you've kind of beat the system. It's like, like walking into a casino and then walking out with more money than you walked in with. Not many people manage to do that. Yeah. Um, they're designed against you. The advertising campaigns that you can run on them will probably lose you money in most cases, unless you're like the casino, unless you're extremely good at what you're doing and a little bit lucky. So um, you have to, in life as a human, always keep in mind, it, are these social media platforms a means to an end? And what is my goal? And am I achieving that goal? Can I measure my progress towards that goal? Am I actually selling albums? Am I actually generating downloads? Are people coming from this platform to me as an artist to appreciate my art in a way that I want? Or is the platform the goal itself? Do I just want to be big on Instagram? Is and that my goal? I yeah, I definitely agree in that sense, too, because like usually with the older ways of promotion, you know, whether it's through a billboard or through a poster or just through word of mouth, like they do tend to be more like genuine and, you know, more like comfortable ways of promoting oneself because people actually do tune in to find out about that event. And, you know, maybe if 100 people saw like a poster, you know, maybe like 15 to 20 people might show up and, you know, you're actually garnering like an actual like fan base, like when people actually see like these posters or when people actually see like certain things like a billboard and they might check out the album in that sense too. Like it did gain like some retrospect for people to actually tune in, whereas within social media, maybe it's not as much as it used to be because like you could post like your music, like, you know, I'm releasing like a song today, but how many people are actually going to like tune into the song as well too? So like maybe one in like 99% in that sense too, or like one in 99 in that, in that way. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about live music performers now, and that's, uh, I mean, this is this is kind of like a re really great way to focus my point about means to an end. If you're a live music performer and you're turning to social media to promote your live music performances, you need to know for every dollar that you spend, how many people are you getting to come to your live performances when you spend that dollar on social media versus, you know, hiring a teenager to plaster the city with posters. Um, so, uh, in, in, in tech marketing, it's always, you know, you have to measure everything. If you don't measure like the effectiveness of what you're doing and your campaign and the money that you're spending, then you're just wasting your money. Um, so, <laughs> and, and, and live performers, like the, the goal is not to have a social media 
presence. I mean, for live performers, they want people to hear their music live because they believe that thou, they themselves and the music that they present in a live setting has a message and an experience that goes above and beyond anything that you can get in a 30-second TikTok video, which I'm pretty sure is true. Yeah, most I'm pretty sure is true. <laughs> so for, for those of you out there who are actually trying to be live performers, um, be suspicious of social media, be constantly asking yourself, if I'm going to spend an hour promoting my music or $100 promoting my music, is TikTok the way that's going to get the most people in seats? Maybe it is. Maybe you're a breakout TikTok artist and people can hardly wait to see you live. Yeah. I'm sure that happens, but it might not be. And you need to know the difference and you need to know how to measure it to know that you're not wasting your time. And I definitely agree in that sense too. Um, I do want to talk about like live music a little bit more, but I want to get into the podcast question since I kind of missed it like on the last uh, podcast. So you actually have a podcast uh, that you have uh, right now. Um, tell me uh, more about that and what made you, like what inspired you to work on this podcast for a bit. It's interesting that you mentioned that because actually my podcasting is a bit on hiatus right now at this precise moment. Uh, there are two podcasts that I've been involved with. Um, one was attached to my uh, former employer, uh, and it was called Deploy Friday. Uh, it was a technology broadcast where I would interview people from the software industry who would build web technologies. And it's a, a play on the, um, the adage that you would never deploy software on Friday, meaning, you know, like release a new version of it because it might break. And if it breaks, then you've ruined your weekend because then you have to spend your weekend fixing it. So you only want to deploy new software on a Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday so that you, if it goes wrong and you create a horrible situation for yourself, then you haven't ruined your weekend. But like the message that we were giving with Deploy Friday was that if you have the right software and the right tools for deploying software, then you can safely deploy on Friday. And I did uh, either hosted or produced 83 episodes of that podcast, and it's to be found everywhere. And if you like web technologies that and like to meet the people who are making them, I interviewed a whole bunch of CEOs or CTOs or developers of very interesting software pro programs on that. And then on my Hive blog, and Hive is a blockchain and a, a social media community that's decentralized. Um, I have interviewed a number of people, um, including musicians, about a number of topics, um, but I haven't done that for a little while because I've been very involved in some work projects, so that's been on pause. I have been meaning to come back to that. Um, I like the Hive community, and I like the way that you uh, publish there, but it's not a very big audience. Um, it's not it doesn't bring you as big of an audience, for example, as YouTube could, not by any imagination. So um, I've, I've, I've been wondering if I should relaunch some of my podcasting efforts and what that would look like. So if people have suggestions, what they'd like to hear from somebody like me, that would be great. I think that the format that you have here is pretty good where you have guests and interview them. Um, I like doing that as well. And I think that my podcast would probably follow some format like that and i definitely agree as well too and where can people like access uh those podcasts like would it would it be like on the same uh ones that i would use like buzzsprout yeah. or sounder or 
All right. Any, anywhere that you can find podcasts uh, or YouTube where, the, where there are video casts, uh, you can search for Deploy Friday uh, and you could see all 83 episodes of that series. Most definitely. Uh, so like to talk more about like the whole like uh, live aspect within music, you know, with live shows and everything going on. We're in 2023 uh, right now. Uh, Happy New Year to everyone uh, watching as well, too, and to Robert as well. Uh, but like it has made a comeback like in late 2021 with concerts like slowly like coming back, leading to festivals and then leading to major like events like orchestras or symphonies as well, too. So how do you feel about like live music making a huge comeback since like the major improvements from COVID, like with the vaccines and with everything else too? Do you feel that there is like a lot of growth that artists have experienced since being locked down? Or do you feel that it needs more improvement to get back to where it was like back in like 2019? Um, well, I would have a hard time answering that for the industry in general. You definitely saw a, a flourish of activities uh, when the lockdowns began that were unique to the pandemic situation. Um, and for reference, I take, for example, the phenomenon of uh, people putting together videos where like, it's like the Brady Bunch, right? Like you see all the squares and people are all singing or playing their instruments remotely, but it's all been stitched together to make one composition. So um, uh, they called them virtual bands or virtual orchestras or virtual choirs. And uh, as, a, as an outgrowth of the pandemic, uh, the school, the music school of Berkeley, the conservatory made one of those. Uh, with the song What the World Needs Now. And there were probably, I don't know, 150 to 200 uh, Berkeley students involved in that. And one of the people who had a very short solo singing about the cornfields and wheat fields uh, for about precisely 1.5 seconds, she had a solo, was Christina Jones. And it was in that video that um, Kimiko Ishizaka and I first saw Christina and identified her as the person that we wanted to make the album um, um, you were my compass. So we saw her in that video and then Kimiko reached out to her and eventually we did a, 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 a virtual recording of one of Kimiko's songs. It was again, four boxes, piano, bass, guitar, and singer, <laughs> and drums and singer rather. Uh, so piano, bass, drums, and singer. So in like a, in a four video grid that I put together in a virtual demo of one of Kimiko's songs to then, um, we used that then to, you know, find the the actual studio and band and producer that made the "You Are My You Were My Compass" album. So that was a phenomenon of COVID that Berkeley made this video that we found Christina that we did our demo also virtual. It was it had COVID's thumbprint all over it. So there's no question that the pandemic really influenced the way that people made music during the lockdown times. And there are some areas of the world like China that have had lockdowns until very recently, severe lockdowns. So this is by far not something that's over and mutations are coming and new waves are coming. However, uh, a lot of places have taken the restrictions away. I think most of us around the world enjoy day-to-day -day life where we've you know either been immunized or have had COVID or both. And a little bit of the fear is gone and... We survived. Not everybody did, but we survived. Um, 
and we go out into public more or less like we did before. I've gone to several conferences, uh, attended some raves. I remember the first time that I was in a situation where there were like a hundred loud drunk people all yelling at me at the same time um, in a nightclub thinking, germs, bring the germs. <laughs> I actually got bronchitis. The bronchitis, the bronchitis was worse than COVID. <laughs> yeah, most definitely. Um, I remember that this one time where I was actually at an event and I was actually like, you know, you know, like around like maybe like 10 feet away from a guy who said hi. And then, you know, basically uh, the next day he had uh, COVID for some reason. So, you know, like just being like some almost like within close proximity with certain people. And this is like when, you know, like back in 2022, like when things started to get back to normal for a bit. Um, it was interesting that COVID can still happen even like when you're in like close proximity, even when you're wearing a mask and all that too. So I think in some cases too, it is important to be cautious, but to always have fun, like either way to like, to like read the room in some cases too. So, well, I think we're stuck with it now yeah. for the rest of our lives. Uh, and who knows how minimal it will become or yeah. how much big threat it still might pose. That's not something that yeah. I can predict. Uh, my my predictive abilities throughout the pandemic have been very poor. Basically, everything, you know, anything that I predicted, oh, you could have bet against me and it would have come true. Um, yeah. So my, my accuracy in predicting things uh, was not very good throughout that time. But I did attend an orchestra performance um, recently where there are basically no restrictions and um, you know, nobody was, very few people were wearing masks and, you know, the people were sitting right next to each other in the hall. And it was beautiful. It was beautiful. The, what we've got culturally, whatever, whatever type of music that you like, whatever type of entertainment that you enjoy, it's an integral part of your life. It's an integral part of social fabric. And it's very hard for us as humans to live without that it's a very painful situation to dispense with that, especially when on, you know, the listeners to this podcast, which is about music and production, we're all deeply invested in creation and have profound personal experiences with music that brought us into this area. So living, living without that in any way is, is extremely painful. And I think that one of the things that I did learn from the pandemic in terms of being modest is that uh, you can only protect yourself so much from a pandemic. <laughs> and there comes a point when the cost of doing that is actually too high. Uh, and there were, there, were, there were people at the beginning, I remember, who were like, I just want to get it. I want it now. Give it to me. Give it to me now. You know, like they were like out trying to get COVID. And I was like, you're crazy. <laughs> and I was like, wait a minute. You know, we all got it in the end. Um, <laughs> they were, they were just like fast forwarding to the part where they weren't afraid anymore. So it's hard to know what the right thing to do is. And it's hard, even in retrospect, to say what the right thing to do was at any given time to get the vaccine, to not get the vaccine. There's all sorts of science. Then there are people who don't believe the science. Yeah. I'm just much more modest about it. And a little bit like music taste, I think most people have to find their own way. And I'm not quite as ready to be critical of anybody's decisions as I was at the beginning. And I definitely know what you mean within that sense too, and understanding 
within that situation as well too i think one of like the greatest fears that everyone has is automation like taking over like the industry i know right now it's taking almost like 70 75 percent of the industries that are kind of like happening right now with uh with uh, auto like um automobile like automation mechanical engineering and even with off with admin work as well too you mean like chat gpt and uh artificial intelligence and machine learning uh Pretty much like robotics as well yeah. too. I mean, they even try to have like an AI like rapper like within the the realm of music, but I didn't think that it would happen for a bit too. But within like in your opinion, do you ever feel that automation will take over like every industry like known to man, or do you feel that human input is still needed like in terms of the emotion and you know the emotional like intelligence and mental intelligence like known to man in that sense. Well, it's an interesting question because all of these automations are nothing but the accumulation of a lot of human input. So for example, chat GPT, if people haven't tried it, it's amazing. Um, it will basically write a text for you, any kind of text, ask it for the rap lyrics based on a theme, you know, write me a rap lyrics that have these parameters, these themes, you know, it has to have guns and drugs or whatever, cars, <laughs> girls, you put it in there, it'll write you the right lyrics. You can even ask it to have like a certain style. Um, I have no, I haven't tried that with rap lyrics, but I have no doubt that it can do it. You can tell what kind of like rhyming, you can give it suggestions, hey, make it rhyme more, make it harder, make it harsher. Um, and it's extremely brilliant, but it's based on billions and billions and billions of inputs of actual human material, like lyrics from songs, artworks, Wikipedia pages, books, all of that goes into that and then it assimilates that. And then there will be networks of these systems that then can draw on each other. I've seen people using chat GPT to uh, write the copy for their web page, and then they go to a different artificial intelligence to generate images for it. And then they go to a different artificial intelligence to make sound for it. And these things can be brought together in a mesh of stuff that's all created from computers and is extremely high fidelity, extremely compelling, but it's nothing but the dissemination, uh, uh, distillation rather, of uh, massive amounts of human input. And the interesting thing is that, uh, especially at this phase, all of them get better if there's a human coaching them and steering them towards a desired result. Um, then they can perform much better. So on LinkedIn, when I see people discussing chat GPT, right now they're saying chat GPT will never take your job away, but a human using chat GPT will. And I kind of believe that. Um, and I believe also in the, the future of robotics automation. So I'm seeing more and more people having first person testaments of uh, testimonials of riding in driverless taxi cabs that they call with a normal app and the car shows up and there's no human driving. It's completely self-driven. Um, it's pretty obvious that uh, as much as possible and as fast as possible, the entire transportation industry is going to try to move to completely uh, automated driving. Um, and there are some advantages and probably some disadvantages to that, but it will happen. And people who are counting on driving a vehicle as a profession 
especially the young ones right now should probably better look for a different job in the long run because it's hard to justify a value add unless you can drive like an Abrams tank, then it's hard to justify a value add for driving a vehicle when already in many cities, a computer can drive a vehicle just as well at a millionth of the cost as a human. So yeah, I believe in all of that. I believe that, um, we're at the very, very, very early stages of what's going to be possible. And in 10, 20, 30 years, it's not going to surprise anybody when you read an entire novel or watch an entire TV series where not only was it written by an AI, but it's completely computer generated. There was not a human involved to begin with. Um, I had a, uh, just to prove a point, I, I had a, a fantasy of, writing a conference proposal where I asked chat GPT to write the proposal. Uh, and then the proposal was to like enact a play or a musical where all of the material was also written by chat GPT. So like every word, the proposal, the actual play or musical was all comp uh, completely generated by AI. And I, th I think it would be fun and compelling and would also make a point that like this stuff's already at the point where uh, it, can, it, can, it can make very compelling material. And it's just a matter of time before, you know, if somebody wants to make an AI that makes great rap, it'll make great rap. Will it make rap that is as monumental as like the first people who made rap or the people who like push the envelope and do something completely new? No, but that doesn't mean it won't be compelling or good. It's just that it depends on the inputs of what's already been done and its derivative. And I definitely agree as well too. Um, within my own experience, um, it actually just happened in my city too. So there's like this new convenience store called Aisle 24, which is like a convenience store with like no owner, like no one like running the cash register mm -hmm. and all that. It's based off like an application that you use, you download the app, you create an account, you purchase like the stuff that you want. It's like sort of similar to Uber Eats and Shopify too. So you just, and like, once you like order the stuff, you just go to the store, you just do your passcode. You could either order it at the store or before the store at hand. And you could go in, like they have like a passcode or like, I think like a whole like fob thing where you access and then people go in and then grab the stuff they need. And then once they take out the stuff, you know, it's already done, like that order's complete too. And I do feel like, there's going to be a situation where, you know, no one's going to run a store anymore. You know, it's going to be more app based, just like that for people to do like their basic things, like whether it's just like grabbing food from like a well-known brand, like a McDonald's or a Burger King, or, you know, to even get something else to like groceries as well. So I oh, do yeah. definitely, yeah. There's no question in my mind that uh, every single human job that doesn't bring a completely defensible, unique human quality to it where only a human can do it will go away. And the the interesting question there is not whether it will happen. Of course, it's going to happen. It's already happening. It's been happening for decades. It's just accelerating. Uh, the interesting question is, what will people do when they don't when they can't get a job <laughs> when there is no job that they are qualified to do because they act, they literally can't do something that a, a machine couldn't do better and this will be a time that will come it's already probably true for some uh people depending on their skill set and their education level Most and certainly. the um the the interesting uh philosophical uh 
developments around that and discussions uh, all have to do with the basic universal income. And uh, if the machines, uh, the programs, the software is creating so much value that basically it's running society, where does that value go? How does it get distributed? And should humans have the right to a a basic income that provides them enough uh, of their needs to basically live in society peacefully without existential cares. Um, and I mean, I'm not an expert on that. And when this is not what the podcast is about, but the, the interesting question about automation is not, will those things come and do basically everything that we can conceive of? Yes, of course they will. They're already well on their way. And if you're not paying attention, you just don't even have any idea how far along they are. They're amazing already. And they're only going to get way better really fast. So yeah, every, all the jobs are going away. Um, or at least they'll be enhanced by tools that do machine learning, artificial intelligence. There's no question. Most definitely. Uh, so this is going to be like maybe like two questions, like one sentence. Which era do you feel created uh, better music? And do you feel that traditional music composition is not as effective today as it was before in that sense? <laughs> You had need to like rein in your time frame here because remember I'm 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 the guy who who will talk to you about music that's like 500 years old. So like <laughs> do you want to talk about the 70s or do you want to talk about Johann Sebastian Bach? <laughs> uh, I could say like maybe within like the most like popular uh, realm too. So like maybe within like the 1900 the 1900s till like now in that sense. So I mean M music has uh, taken a more and more and more important role continuously through all of that time. And the number of people making music has increased continuously through all of that time. And the modes through which it's uh, enjoyed and distributed and the, the, you know, the amount of presence it has in our lives has increased over time. In the 1900s, people didn't walk around with earbuds in their ears. They didn't have headphones like this. They couldn't just listen to music on demand. They didn't have a Spotify that had a catalog of every song every, ever written where they could just like say, hey, Siri, play uh, whatever. They couldn't do that. So um, if you ask me what the best era for music is, it's right now. Today, not yesterday, today, because today there are more possibilities for you than there were yesterday, and tomorrow it will be even better. So, I mean, it's very obvious that, like, the most music that has ever been made was made now. <laughs> and, it's, and, it, and it's increasing, okay? So, um, in terms of, like, music that I like the most, I like Johann Sebastian Bach. I think he was the best musician that humanity ever created but he's been done he's you know been dead for 400 years or so um and we'll never have another one like that uh, it's impossible and when you ask about traditional music creation what does that even mean johann sebastian bach would hear the music in his mind and he would write notes on a piece of paper and hopefully these pieces of paper didn't get used to pack meat or to start fires and fireplaces or just get rained upon so that they would survive hundreds of years into later generations and people could copy them by hand and play the pieces but he started by imagining all the sounds in his head Whereas people these days, when they create music, they typically open up a, a DAW or a mixing program or a, you know, a synthesizer or something or sampling program, 
and they start putting electronic things together in tracks, it's a completely different process. Um, I, I think that there are very few people left on earth who simply sit and think of music in their brain. And when they've got it the way they want it, they write it down on paper. <laughs> that that yeah. doesn't happen very often. That's what Kimiko Ishizaka does, but it, it's very rare. Most definitely. I feel like, you know, just even in opinion, in an opinion based sense too, like if a Johann Sebastian Bach or a Beethoven or Mozart were to like listen to like a current mainstream song right now, like let's say Anti-Hero by Taylor Swift, like I don't know like how the reactions would be. I don't know if they would prefer like the composition like from that as opposed to what they're like making like back then too, or if they would be like sort of like indifferent to it. Well, this is a very interesting question, which we can never answer, but I used to have a fantasy uh, quite often. Um, it was probably one of my top two or three fantasies. Like, what would I buy if I won the lotto? Uh, what would my life be if I went back to 10 years old with all of my current knowledge and could live my life again, but knowing the future? And then number three was, what would it be like if Mozart just appeared in my car next to me and I could turn his symphony on the radio as we drive through a modern city? What questions would he have? The world's changed so much. What, what magic is this that allows a Mozart symphony to come through the speakers of a car, through the air, into the car without an orchestra being there in this car? What's a car even? Like, why the hell are we moving 100 kilometers an hour down the road? How is this possible? And like the 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 shock and enjoyment uh, of like introducing somebody from the past to the modern life. Um, so that was my number three fantasy out of all my fantasies. Um, but like when I really think into it, what would Taylor Swift sound like to Mozart? It would be shocking. It would it would it would be so foreign there would be sounds that he couldn't explain the the instruments being used and the whole um the 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 vocabulary of drums and beats and the use of like bass and harmony uh is so far removed from what he was doing and what he thought was valuable and what he thought was interesting that it would probably not go over very well it would probably not sound very much like music at all to, to a Mozart. Um, I think that you have to have a certain contextual preparation to be able to absorb something that you hear. Um, and if you don't have that contextual preparation, you can't absorb it as music. I'll give you a case in point from my history. Okay. So, I mean, first of all, I grew up almost summarily rejecting pop music altogether in the 80s, even though 80s pop music is awesome. <laughs> it's awesome. I love it now. But uh, because of the context in which I grew up, which was very focused on orchestras and classical music, that wasn't even considered music. That was considered trash. And that context prevented me from enjoying 80s music for a long time. And even within the classical music, um, I remember when my orchestra had to play Stravinsky's Rite of Spring, and some people out there might know this. It's it's very uh, 20th century, uh, early 20th century. So lots of dissonances, harsh rhythms, harsh sounds from the uh, from the from the orchestra. Very um, pioneering at the time. It caused a riot when it was premiered in Paris, like a literal riot at the theater, um, with people heckling and shouting and throwing objects and fighting. So that's how striking it was and when i heard it 
on my cassette tape. I stopped the tape. I took the tape out. I hurled it across the room and cussed at it and said, that's not music. I can't believe I have to play that crap. But I had to play that crap, meaning I had to learn it. So I kept listening to it. And at some point, I gained enough context to listen into those sounds and gain an understanding of them. And they grew upon me to the point where Stravinsky's Rite of Spring became, at least for an entire year, my favorite music on earth. And I listened to it hundreds of times, hundreds, to the point that I was dreaming of vegetables growing through the earth and pagans running through forests uh, based on the sounds of this music. So when I think about what a Johann Sebastian Bach would hear if he heard Taylor Swift, I don't think it would go over very well. And frankly, even if he got enough context, he still might not like Taylor Swift in the end. <laughs> Let's be honest. Yeah. We're talking about the greatest musician who ever walked the earth versus Taylor Swift. Nah, I definitely agree. I think with <laughs> Swift fans, like they're probably going to be upset at that, but I do feel like it is the truth in some way too. Um, and like, you know, I never really asked like other people like this question as much too, because like it is like more in relation to music, uh, like back then, like with the podcast, but this is more so like on other interests too. So what are your like favorite like movies and TV shows and books? And do you have like any other like podcasts, like recommendations that you would like to share? Like if you do like tap in with podcasts? Oh gosh, this is always a hard question to answer podcasts. I've been listening to Netflix as a joke a day. I've listened to the whole backlog. It's great. They take uh, the Netflix stand-up series and they extract one segment from a show and it can last anywhere from one to 10 minutes. Uh, and every day one comes out and it's hilarious. And I love it. Um, I also love um, Dan Savage's uh, The Savage Lovecast, I think it's called. Uh, because I think that uh, topics around sexuality and love uh, and relationships are ex extremely important to humans. And uh, I think that he's got an incre incredibly uh, deep and nuanced view on the, the human aspect of sexuality and, and relationships. Um, in terms of books, if you're ever curious about the life of a classical musician, the life and the, the inner mind of a classical musician, I've got a great book recommendation for you. Uh, it's not particularly new, but it's brilliant. It's a good read. It's fun for anybody. It's a great novel. And just additionally, just and it's so realistic to the point of view of the classical musician that you can really take it as gospel. This is what it's like being in the mind of a classical musician. It's called An Equal Music by Vikram Seth, and Equal Music by Vikram Seth. And it's about a, a violin player in, in a string quartet in London. It's just brilliant. Um, in terms of movies, um, <laughs> I can't say that I have a favorite movie or anything, but I just listened to the entire soundtrack of Cinema Paradiso, uh, by the soundtracks by Morricone. And I just think that that, mu that movie is so beautiful and so touching. And the, the music, it just goes straight into me every time. It's this, this beautiful Italian sentimentality that uh, with very lyric melodies that just rip your heartstrings. I just love his music and I love that movie. So there you go. Yeah, most definitely. As uh, far as for me uh, right now, as far as podcasts, I'm tapping into... Uh 
like I think Tales of the T- uh, Town podcast, which is more so like an Oakland history uh, podcast where it talks about like the history of Oakland and like the culture within that city in terms of like hip hop, music, sports, you know, like the Black Panther Party, the school system and everything else too. Um, As far as like more like music podcasts, I do like watch like the Off the Record podcast with DJ Academics, which is more like hip hop based, uh, No Jumper, which is like a well-known uh, media platform. And then um this other one called like the Damage Goods uh, podcast, which I've had a previous friend that I've interviewed before in the past, Ill Vibe, talk with his wife, um, you know, more so, well, her name's uh, Jessica Robert, like, they talk more about, like, in their daily life, you know, a lot of, like, interesting uh, topics, too, like, I think one, in one topic, they talked about, like, John Mayer as well, and as far as, like, movies, TV shows, and books, uh, right now, I think books, uh, I think, like, there's this one book that I actually like, um, which is a Craig Hodges, uh, like, you know, autobiography, which he talked about his time playing for the Bulls, you know, being, you know, married in that sense to like dealing with like a lot of uh, relationships, you know, even like playing basketball, like in the White House with like a full on like African uh, gown in that sense too, which and a uh, dashiki as well. And even with the hat too, which is like very interesting. Um, uh, I'd say like there's like a lot of like books that I like, but I'd have to it, it'll be like a long podcast too. I think for movies right now, like my top five at the moment, uh Barton Fink, uh Mall Holland, uh Drive, Forrest Gump, and I think uh One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest with uh Jack Nicholson, like that's pretty good. And then I think my fifth one would be a tie between Freedom Writers, which is like an actual like you know, autobiography movie, by the way, about, like, a school system, like, in, like, Long Beach, uh, California, where they deal about, like, education or uh, menace to uh, society, which is, like, more like a Black-oriented film, too. So, like, that's kind of, like, my top five uh, TV shows. Uh, yeah, I'd say, like, The Wire, uh, Oz, um, I think uh, Fresh Off the Boat, too. Uh, like, it would be, like, a long day as well, too, like, to even speak about the shows, too. So, just kind of like what I have uh, right there as well. It's it's better call Saul for me. <laughs> Most definitely. Uh, yeah, Breaking Bad's also good too. Um, Like I would like put that on the list too. It's just, I think the last time I watched Breaking Bad was like maybe a year or two ago. And like, you know, I watched the first time back in like 2014, 2015 and then got back into it like earlier on, like, you know, like later, la- like two years ago and then like last year, like within the early parts. And, you know, I, I enjoyed it. I love the movie, uh, Al Camino. Hopefully I get to watch uh, Better Call Saul, like even though like it's already like done in that sense. But yeah, it's kind of like, it kind of makes sense, you know, within that universe. Um, I know that you live in like Europe uh, for a bit uh, right now. So like, since you lived in Europe, what were like some major differences and similarities between like living in Europe and like living in like North America based on your experience and what you've noticed? Mm, well, I mean, to be clear, I've lived in Germany for 25 years, so it's not a short period of time, but I have, uh, I still am an American, I consider myself to be American by culture, I haven't become German, even though I've learned a lot about German culture, um, and I do travel to the to the United States and North America, um, not so frequently in the last couple of years, but uh, overall, I've maintained a very steady connection due to family and work. Uh, What are the major differences? The difference that I like to point out the most is that space matters. 
And in Europe, the way that cities are planned and villages are planned um, is predominantly uh, with less space for everything. So the cars are smaller, the streets are smaller, the apartments are smaller. Uh, and as a result, I get to walk everywhere. I can walk to six grocery stores from my apartment. If I have a doctor's appointment, I walk. If I need to go to my tax accountants, I walk. I walk to the gym. I can walk to my office or ride my bike. I can walk to the train station. I can walk three minutes to get on the train that takes me 25 minutes to the airport. So uh, not only do I not need a car to get around the city, I don't even need a car to fly internationally. And it's all because of space. People's lawns, people's big houses, living remotely out in the country, wide streets, wide sidewalks, they all have a downside to your mobility. It means you simply have to go further for everything, meaning you need the cars. Uh, public transportation becomes less attractive, less viable. And as a consequence, you need more space for cars. <laughs> it's a <laughs> self-defeating yeah. cycle. Uh, you've got parking lots instead of parks. You've got sidewalks instead of destinations. <laughs> You've got yeah. streets instead of a location that you'd like to be. So uh, if, if you were to take the video of my life living in the middle of a European city versus the video of uh, an urban American's life uh, living in most cities that I'm familiar with, um, some parts of Manhattan, some parts of San Francisco being the exception where you can actually live in those cities and like just move around on a bicycle or on foot where it's a little bit similar. But for most people, it starts with getting out of bed, getting in a car, driving someplace. And if you just watch the video, then what the American sees is cars, roads, traffic lights, fast food, gas stations, strip malls. And that's a huge part of your day, a huge part of every day that you go out of the house. And I don't see any of that. I see face-to-face -face people. I see stores that I'm close enough to reach out and touch. And uh, I'm getting exercise when I move around. So um, in terms of things that I like the most about the experience of being in Europe, it's that everything's packed close together and not yeah. spread far apart so that you need a car. Yeah, most definitely. I do definitely agree as well, too. Uh, when I went to Rome and I think Amsterdam and, you know, where it's back in like uh, 2017, like I did notice that it's very like restrictive in terms of like how you walk and with everything else, too. Like most people like they'll have like, you know, like a motor or an electric bike rather than like an actual like vehicle. And even if the vehicle is there, like it's going to be like a very small, like compact vehicle, like a v uh, Fiat in that sense, too when you know when you walk around it's like very interesting how there's like a, like a lot of like cobblestone and like a lot of like you know cemented bricks you know rather than like you know actual like sidewalk pavings too like i know with canada where i'm at like in toronto it's a mix between america and you know europe in that sense too in terms of like what they have in america you know just like with the spacious areas while you know still maintaining like that whole like british like that french culture as well too and it's kind of like a mix between both but i do feel like with europe it's more like culturally like refined in terms of like the food in terms of like the music on what's going on in terms of like the clothing like i do feel like it is like more advanced than you know going to like the states where you know even if you go to like a kmart or a walmart you're gonna get like something that might be like very like outdated too in that sense so i would i i try to avoid 
precisely judgmental terms like more advanced or culturally refined, I'd say different. There are differences. But to paint North Americans as being either like less advanced or less culturally refined would not be my goal. Because actually, when you sit down and talk to an individual, you'll find that they too are a human being with complete thoughts and <laughs> experiences that are valid experiences as a human and have a point of view that's equally important. And uh, I, I don't put Europeans on a pedestal in that respect. But the actual physical mechanics of having things close together has a profound influence on the quality of life for the positive, in my opinion. Well, um, most definitely, and uh, my bad on the misjudgment as well too with the different cultures as well. Um, I do feel like everyone is unique in their own way, and you know, I wish nothing but the best in that sense too. Um, but even in your opinion, uh, right now, do you feel like North America is not really like a place to like that's worth like living anymore based on you know what's going on in you know the USA and Canada, or do you feel like that every continent and con and country has like its flaws in that sense? It's one of the best places to live. People who live in North America should feel so freaking privileged that they just wake up and shout with joy every day. It's not the only great place to live. Um, I have a friend in Kiev right now. They're in a war. They get bombed on a daily basis. But she shows me how great her life is, how she's got wonderful markets, wonderful restaurants, great culture, great weather, wonderful food, and a great quality of life. So it's a mistake to think that there's only one place on earth that's great to live. That's not the case. There are lots of places. People in Moscow right now are having a great life too. But uh, the people in North America have natural bounty from the land that they live on. And they have no enemies like Russia at their doorstep who are able to attack them directly. They have the one of the highest standard livings on earth. And yeah, I mean, the politics is just a mess and so poisonous and awful. But you can choose how much of that you let in. Uh, and yeah, you, a lot of people are bound to their cars, but, you know, that's the way the society is built right now. And like, uh, you have to function within the society that you're born in or, or move. Uh, and not everybody can. I mean, you should be absolutely thrilled that you're in North America. It's an absolute great place to live. It has horrible problems, school shootings. I mean, what? Why can't that be a solvable problem? Nobody else has that problem that way. Nobody. It's very unique to the uh, United States. Um, very unique and very solvable with, uh, without, you know, gun nuts and stubborn NRA people blocking it. Anyway, I digress. You should always be very happy to be in North America. It's one of the best places on earth to live. It's beautiful. There uh, is a huge diversity of people. Um, there's almost no place on earth that's dealt with cultural and ethnic diversity in the same way. And yes, there's racism. And yes, there's a lot of problems. And uh, uh, there's a, a lot of um, wealth disparity. But I mean, the society is pioneering when it comes to things like um, gender identification and um, gender equality. I mean, this is amazing, some of the things that are going on there. So, I mean... Yeah, it's, if if you could if you could like build the cities like Europe, but have have them be in North America, it would be like paradise. 
most definitely um i think we're getting to the end of the interview uh, right now um so do you have any closing uh, remarks that you would like to say and do you want to like shout out like your social media for a bit too for people to access I don't have social media. <laughs> you won't find me. I'm not on Instagram. Yeah, true, I'm not true. on Facebook. I told you yeah. I don't like that yeah. stuff. Um, yeah. No, I have nothing to promote right now. Oh, no, I do. One thing that I will tell you is that um, I'm going to be releasing a, a film uh, in 2023. Um, when Kimiko Ishizaka did the Well-Tempered Clavier Project, she did 12 concerts. They were called the 12 Tones of Bach concerts in seven different countries around the world and then went to the studio and recorded for six days uh, and all of that was filmed extensively by a, uh, a a filmmaker who lives in the country georgia uh, and she brought a cameraman with her for all of it and filmed all of it and recorded all of it and it's taken her over 10 years now but she's finally finished her film documenting that project so we're going to release a documentary about Kimiko Ishizaka and her quest to make the best recording ever on the piano of Bach's well-tempered clavier uh so you can look forward to that um and you'll just have to find me if you want to follow <laughs> most definitely uh Robert Douglas you know thank you for coming by to the podcast you know to sharing your gems and to share like a lot of good, good experiences I know like with the first one it was more so based on your story and what you've uh what you did like growing up and you know like even working with Kimiko and with Christina as well too I think this one was like more of you know a very like a very unique conversation like on a lot of stuff with tech with music with what we left off and you know it's very like interesting to hear like within that sense too i wish like nothing but the best for you and for you know your documentary as well too with uh, kiminko and with everything else uh, going on uh and for everyone uh watching at uh TLO talks thank you for watching episode i think uh, i think i said episode 24 i think like in that sense too i'll have to double check uh, later on but like once this uh podcast is aired um you could actually check it out on all platforms on buzzsprout on sounder on apple podcasts on spotify i know right now with the situation situation with sounder they're shutting down the hosting section of it like they just shut down the ads just recently so we are like in the process of migrating it to like a new podcast uh, format like maybe rss maybe something else too but definitely be on the lookout like when you do see it and you know this is episode 24 of tloy talks with uh, with uh, josh also known as yashu signing off